Hello, my name is Jamila Rizvi and this is Anonymous Was a Woman, a Future Women and Penguin podcast. This is a show about books about women, books written for women and about the women who write those books. My co-host is Astrid Edwards from the Garrett podcast. Today's episode, we're talking all about fear. Astrid, what are you scared of on the page? That is such a great question, Jamila. Regardless of genre, I am scared of reading something that makes me feel like I'm there and it'd be a terrifying place to be. Mm. So it's about the quality of the author and the skill to be able to bring the fear to life for you? Yes. And now that you've said that back to me in a way better way than I said it to you, I'm also scared of ideas. And, you know, in our first episode on this podcast, we talked about Margaret Atwood and the Testaments and The Handmaid's Tale. And that still terrifies me years after I first read The Handmaid's Tale because it paints that terrifying picture of what if. And that's goddamn terrifying. Yeah. And before I read any of Margaret Atwood's work, to be honest, most of her work's a bit terrifying. But certainly The Handmaid's Tale and The Testaments... My imagination hadn't gone to where hers had and yet I had all the tools, the building blocks of where she went to and so putting them all together in the shape of what she created for me was absolutely terrifying. Are you someone who enjoys work that is written about other people's fear? So explorations of racism or sexism or whatever it might be? Yes, I read a lot of nonfiction and I find the older I get, the more I'm actually drawn to nonfiction because I like knowing about my world. I like understanding about the world I live in and I like learning about the parts of my world that aren't my experience, but that mean everything to what is happening around me. But we have a violent disagreement, Jam. I'm also that person who will sit down with a zombie thriller and think that's a really good use of a couple of hours. Yeah, I like to be scared with a purpose. That does have purpose. Well, today, Astrid, you are going to have to hold my hand and we will delve into the world of scary, scary writing of all kinds together. Astrid, this episode is all about fear and we want to talk about fear from a whole lot of different angles. We want to talk about the role of control or perceived control in alleviating our fears and how fears manifest differently when they're experienced individually or collectively. Our guest for this segment is the wonderful Rebecca Robertson, who is an Australian actor who appeared on television and stage. And in 2012, she founded the first parent-led peer support group and information hub for transgender kids and their families in Australia. It's called Transcend. She now advocates for transgender kids and has been nominated for a whole bunch of awards for her work. She is the author of About a Girl, and I'm delighted that she joins us now. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you, Jamila. Thank you, Astrid. Lovely to be here. Let's kick off with just a really quick explanation in your words rather than me describing your book for you. What brought you to write about a girl and what? why was it so important to get that story out into the Australian community? All right. So the book is about raising my daughter, Georgie Stone. Uh, she's transgender at a time when the discussion around uh, trans rights has become somewhat of a fraught political football. 
it was important for me to write the book because I suppose we were one of the first families to emerge from what's described as affirmative care through the Royal Children's Hospital in Hobart. And I could take the reader from birth through to adulthood with my young trans person and talk about our lives. I think trans young people are mischaracterised very often in the press, especially some of the more conservative media. I think there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of fear-mongering. And I wanted to try and help dispel those myths. You use the word fear-mongering and that still exists as we talk now in 2020. And this is by no means, not enough has changed for this to be behind us. This is still very much a, a real and present thing that we need to change in Australia. This is your autobiography or kind of the biography of your family and Georgie's experience. Can you talk to us a little bit about the fear that you felt? Um, Yeah, so initially when Georgie, it became clear that Georgie needed support around her gender identity and I had started to search the internet for assistance and this was back in 2005, 2006, 2007 There was nothing on the internet that was in any way, shape or form helpful to a parent like me of a young child. So many of my searches would take me to all the places that I feared most in terms of her future. They took me to escort agencies. They took me to uh, stories about people who were homeless or drug addicted. It fed into all of my fears about what her future might look like. The problem with fear is, I think in that scenario or any scenario, is you take the best information available to you at the time and your imagination then fills in the gaps. So you fill in the rest with with, uh, stereotypes and assumptions that you've learned along the way. And I think this can really prevent people from taking faster action when they're in a situation where you need to move fairly quickly. It can, for some people, cause paralysis, that that overwhelm of fear based on inadequate knowledge can really take hold. Rebecca, I have a very dear friend who is where you were in 1995 or 96, and I know that my friend as a mum has been made to feel less fearful because of your book. So I think if it's done that for one parent, it has no doubt done it for more. So you've done a wonderful act of kindness, I think, in allaying the fears of other parents of trans kids and also giving them a bit of a sense of what might be ahead of them and the sorts of things they need to start thinking about early. We've talked about your fears. I I want to ask about the fears of others because we touched on fear-mongering and the way the media uh, there's, no, there's no better word. The way the media plays with this issue and plays with it for clicks and plays with it to build and feed fear in the community. How has that made you feel and how have you responded to it? Uh, look, I've had various responses over the years, actually. I think early on as a, as a new activist, you're very responsive. You, you react very quickly and very emotionally to, to, to what's being thrown at you. From a family level, when Georgie uh, started to see 
the good folk at the RCH. It wasn't being talked about in, in the public domain. It wasn't being spoken about in the media. The, the, the fear of others was coming from family members, was coming from people directly around me. And I think that was much harder to take in many ways than the, the abuse that we get from, from media because it was so much more personal. I, I found that very difficult to resolve in myself, I think, that, that people thought that I was harming my child. Somebody at the Murdoch Press, I don't take that as personally. It's a different attitude. You have been in the public eye and advocating for almost a decade now, maybe more. Writing a book is it is an act of advocacy, but it is also a very different thing. This is um, a very intimate look at your family life. Uh, you know, the family is the most personal thing that we have to share with the world in many ways. And I'm interested in how you felt yourself as choosing the vehicle of a book, choosing the medium of a book to share your experience, George's experience and that of your family with the world. It's different than a media release. It's different than a statement after um, mm. a, a court appearance. It's, you know, it's 300 something mm. pages of your family life. I felt as though our story had been bent out of shape over time. I was hoping going to be a way that I could put our lives in context. And I talk in the book about having watched our Australian story on the ABC and it was a terrific show, but after watching it about three times, it was, it was not our story anymore, not the way we had experienced, not the way we had experienced it. And it's not to say that they'd done, uh, they hadn't done a good job because they had, but it didn't feel like our story anymore. So I understand why you wrote the book, but I'm interested in how you felt about it. At you know near the beginning of About a Girl, you say that the writing of this book was excruciating. Mm. Um, can you go into that for me? So I've never written a book before, and I thought it would be a great plan. <laughs> and I now know that this is the number one rookie mistake um, to think it's our story. It'll be fine. It'll just pour out of me and we'll have a book at the end of it. It wasn't like that at all. Getting it down on page was really difficult because often we were living the events as I was writing about them, especially towards the end. But the backbone of the book, the whole six years of our court experience, I could not face. I could not face it. And I remember when I had got, there was no other excuse that I could throw at not doing the backbone of the book and sitting in my bed with all of our court documents all over the bedspread and reading bits of court transcript and, and finding myself back in there and, and crying and writing a bit and the kids bringing me a cup of tea and reading them the bit from the transcripts and reading them the bit that I'd written, I would all cry and then I'd go back to do some more. And I think that process was really difficult to put myself back in there and feel those feelings again. One of the themes that came through for me while reading the second time was just how deeply held and fundamental 
lines and barriers between gender and what is male and what is female are held by some within the community and how difficult it is to shift those strongly held beliefs. Do you think the reason those beliefs are so difficult for us to tackle and confront and begin a conversation with people about why perhaps those binary lines are a myth. (laughs) Does that entrenchment come from historical context because it's always been believed by those people as fact or is there fear involved in there too, in their refusal to depart from what they think is a set way of viewing the world? Oh, look, I think it's absolutely both of those things. I think it's a combination of those things for sure. We're taught from a very young age from little babbies and it all just gets absorbed you know it gets absorbed and because that's how the world is reflected at us it gets confirmed and then it gets embedded as a fact it's a real shame because uh, I'm not sure that gender roles have been that useful for any of us I think people fear what they don't know. And like I said at the beginning, they they fill in the gaps with stereotypes, assumptions, and sometimes God. I think that is an incredibly poignant and important point to end on. Rebecca, thank you so much for spending your time with us today to unpack fear, to talk about your book and to talk about your family. I can't imagine a greater fear than that of a parent about the well-being of their child and how their child might be treated badly by the world, how their child might be fearful. I think you have done a most magnificent job, if I can say that from afar. Thank you for sharing your time with us and your thoughts with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Jam, today I would like to introduce you to See What You Made Me Do by Jess Hill. This was published in 2019 in Australia and is a groundbreaking work looking at domestic violence and domestic abuse in the home in Australia. This is, of course, the winner of the Stella Prize for 2020, which is the prize in Australia that honours the writing of women, named, of course, after Miles Franklin, who was someone who couldn't be published under her own name. She could have been an anonymous, in fact, as per the name of our podcast. Astrid, tell me, what were your early thoughts when you read Jess's work? So I want to talk about this book today, Jam, because the first time I became aware of See What You Made Me Do, it actually made me stop and think and wonder how can you write a book about domestic abuse? Where do you find the research? Who is going to talk to you? Who is going to buy and read this book? Because it had never been done. I had never seen uh, a book on this topic anywhere, including in Australia. And the publisher, before it was published, sent me a little excerpt of the first chapter and it came with a trigger warning, essentially. I kind of felt nervous and excited and a bit overwhelmed and intrigued and I didn't know what to do with it and I think I actually put it down and came back to it the next day because I didn't know where to process this and then I read it and I thought I have never read anything like this before I must read the book and I need to follow where this book goes in Australia we're here to talk about fear and fear comes in many forms and you can choose it and you can not choose it and and you know I'm going to talk to you about pandemic literature later and it's going to be amazing. But when we talk about fear, there is no more visceral and important fear as the fear that some women, many women experience 
in the home. And that is what Jess Hill takes on and explores and demonstrates in See What You Made Me Do. Absolutely. I mean, when we conceptualize the idea of fear, there are different kinds and different forms of fear, of course, and there are different causes of fear. But the idea of being in fear immediately uh, for your own safety and even more than that of having no safe place to go to because that fear is playing itself out in your home, which is supposed to be your safe place. I think there's something extra visceral about that. And yet, as you mentioned, there are no books on this topic. She originally didn't want to because she'd been so immersed in the family court and this work as a journalist for years that she just felt she'd kind of run out. Like she just was so exhausted and devastated by what she'd seen in the family court. She didn't think she had more to contribute. She didn't think she could bring herself to it, to the trauma and the fear of even writing about these topics. And yet when the publisher said, yeah, but no one does, there are no books on this. Hill sort of felt compelled, like she owed it to the survivors of violence to make a contribution. Tell me, what is it about this book that surprised you or opened your eyes? Because while there aren't many books on this subject, it is a subject that is unpacked in our newspapers quite regularly. And I would like to think that you and I are well-versed on family violence and domestic abuse issues. And yet I know I was shocked the whole way through this book. Was that your response? Absolutely. And the first thing that shocked me actually was the title. So the full title is See What You Made Me Do, Power, Control and Domestic Abuse. And when I originally read that, I'm like, oh, why doesn't it say domestic violence? Because that's clearly what this book is about. And did they like not want to have violence on the cover? Uh, Like I literally had that kind of marketing look at it. And then in the book, Hill actually spends a lot of time explaining why she's not writing about domestic violence, why the appropriate word and the appropriate terminology is domestic abuse. And she unpacks domestic abuse and explains what that is. And I kind of had you know, intellectually and emotionally known that, but I had been using the wrong words and been referring to the wrong thing. And the reason why the distinction is important is domestic violence is that physical violence. And that is obviously a huge component of what may happen in someone's home. However, domestic abuse brings in uh, the psychological violence. It brings in the financial manipulation. It brings in the the emotional abuse that is all-encompassing in uh, a situation of domestic abuse in the home. Now, obviously, that often occurs between two partners, two adult partners, but in the, you know, theoretical safety of the home that can also involve children as well. So a child might witness violence from one partner against another, mostly a man against a woman. Um, And that violence is not them physically, but they are then bearing the emotional and uh, psychological abuse that comes from witnessing that in their own home. So that was the first thing that taught me a lesson. And that is a lesson that I needed to know and understand. But your question, you know, what surprised me? My God, the whole thing surprised me, Jam. I mean, it was just a constant lesson of learning what is happening around me. I mean, it might be happening in the building that I live in. It might be, probably is statistically, you know, like I'm pausing here because sometimes it is a struggle to find the right words to express what I feel and think about uh, this book. I think might be one of those few books that starts to change something in our world, change people uh, and change laws. 
I truly hope that is the case. One of the things that really struck me about Jess's work is that she unpicks and she really carefully examines and brings to life through her storytelling, her journalistic storytelling, why fear is so pervasive through every element of domestic abuse. The added layer that comes into this that Jess Hill does so beautifully in the book is when she unpacks the legal system and how further traumatizing and the fear that so many women experience when they are suddenly thrust into a legal framework that they thought would support and protect them but absolutely doesn't it actually reinforces trauma more often than not not just emotional trauma and psychological trauma but also inflicts more financial pain on the woman because more often than not women don't get their costs paid in these circumstances one thing that really I did take away in a almost uplifting feels like the wrong word so I apologize for it in advance but something uplifting that I felt that took me beyond that idea of fear when I interviewed Jess was she spoke about survivors of family violence and domestic abuse And she spoke about the way they approached staying alive and what they had to do to stay alive. And she completely turned that victim narrative on its head and said, these women have kept themselves alive in circumstances where they have had to be tricky, they have had to be clever, they've had to be in a good way, manipulative. They have kept their children safe against the odds. And a lot of the time that's required like wiliness and ingenuity and that it's even more than just being a survivor. There's a real hero narrative that Jess Hill lays forth. And that was something I'm kind of ashamed to say I'd never I'd never really thought about. I hadn't thought about it either. And you bring up a really good point. The narrative of domestic abuse is just horrendous and depressing. And that's one of the obvious reasons why people don't write books about it, right? And one of the reasons why people don't talk about it that much in public, although that is slightly starting to change. But she's trying to give us a different narrative and a different narrative that we can talk about. And one of uh, the very important strands of that is that survivors can be heroes and they have done something extraordinary. And the other narratives in there that aren't given quite as much prominence as the survivor deservedly so, but there are ones that we do need to uh, have in our conversations is the narrative of the perpetrator. Now, the perpetrator is the person who has done wrong and there is absolutely no question about that and there must be legal and other consequences to that. However, if we don't want to just keep having perpetrators in our society, often hidden behind closed doors, we need to talk about the perpetrators and we need to have a discussion about can somebody stop being a perpetrator and can they be rehabilitated and how do we uh, essentially support that process? Because as a society, we have to support perpetrators stop being perpetrators, right? Um, That is not to take away resources from uh, survivors at all. It's just that we can't eradicate domestic abuse if we are only looking at survivors. We have to look at the people who are doing it and there has to be 
a fix for that and that fix will be a work of generations and the legal system and finances and schools and workplaces and everything. But we do need that other narrative as well, even though it is an unpalatable one. And Jess makes the point, which is, I think, a really important one, which is that so many perpetrators are themselves the victims of violence. They have also grown up in violent homes. And of course, they're I don't say that by any means to excuse the adult behaviour of those individuals, but it points to a cycle of violence and a context for that violence, which when it comes to policymakers and lawmakers, we have to consider that when we're looking for solutions. Astrid, we have talked a lot about fear of a woman who is living with someone who is violent towards her, but there is also fear that exists Uh, amongst the community around her and within her about the community around her, isn't there? Oh, completely. And this is one of the reasons why domestic abuse has to be a discussion in public, not about the individual survivors or victims or perpetrators, but how do we stop it happening if we suspect it. So for example, women sometimes talk to women uh, and sometimes that is helpful, but also it's often done under a veneer of, you know, politeness or social respectability, giving the person who might be experiencing domestic abuse kind of a reason, an easy way of not acknowledging it or not really admitting to it. And there's also on the other side, very few people talk to the potential or suspected perpetrators. And I guess that means anyone, but particularly men don't really talk to men who might be perpetrating or or who the women in their lives say are perpetrators. There is this complete lack of public discussion. And one of Jess Hill's points is that we need anyone, particularly men in male environments, to say to men who they suspect are perpetrators, hey, what's happening? That's not okay. How can I help you change? We have talked about this book in the context of fear, but it is also fiercely practical and it is optimistic. Jess offers possible solutions. She talks about a way forward and a way out of the situation we have in Australia where more than one woman a week is killed by an intimate partner or a former intimate partner. And I think in that sense, she has done a real service to the Australian community. And I very much hope people sit up and take notice of this sensational book, See What You Made Me Do by Jess Hill. All right, Astrid, it is my turn and we are turning to fiction now. So have you read A Year of Wonders by Geraldine Brooks? No, I haven't. But when you suggested this book for our podcast today, I got very excited because I can tell uh, from the blurb that this is veering towards pandemic literature. And Jem, you don't strike me as the type of woman who reads pandemic literature. <laughs> for the most part, I definitely am not. In fact, I think um, I think this may have been my only ever foray into pandemic literature. It is essentially the journal of a woman living through a plague year in the 17th century. So I will set the scene a little bit for you without giving away the story because you and I'm sure some of the people listening will not have read this one. And I do not want to give away what is a really beautiful narrative and beautiful book. So essentially there is an infected bolt of cloth. So like, you know, like a piece of cloth that you would make clothes out of and it has got the plague on it and it is transported from London to this tiny little isolated village and as a result this tiny little village loses about I think it's about two-thirds of its population to this plague and 
we follow Anna Firth, who is sort of the unlikely hero and she's a local healer and housemaid and we follow what happens to the village and her fellow villagers uh, through her eyes and it's kind of it's a book that is a mixture of disease and the horror of disease and death coming to the doorstep of every damn household but it's also about superstition and prayer and religion and what we turn to in a time of horrible crisis. And look, Astrid, it felt kind of, you know, relevant. Look, it does feel relevant, Jam. Can you tell me, is this like, would this fall into the horror genre or would this fall into the literary fiction genre? Does it make you scared to read it or is it about someone uh, who is in this horrendous situation where you would obviously be fearful? I would most certainly put it in the literary fiction genre because it feels so far away simply because it's historical and you're dealing with I think it's 1666 where the book opens and so it does feel foreign in that sense it feels like something of history not something of the now it's not like watching that contagion movie where you you kind of go hold on bit too much truth bit too much could happen right now to me in this moment so I think the distance of time from this work of fiction which is of course using historical fact as it's as it's sort of setting the distance of time does mean that you feel a little bit protected from the story however I think rereading the book right now, which I've done a little bit of in this moment of time, did mean that I read it with a different view. I, I, I felt less like I was having that kind of glorious fictional insight into an experience I would never have myself. That kind of went away. That's how I felt the first time I read it. Whereas this time, I don't know, there was, there were, it did feel a little bit, close to home and it did feel that little bit more confronting and I wanted to read at you if that's okay just this this little quote from quite early in the book so I promise it's not giving anything away where Anna Frith who is our protagonist she's sort of watching the harvesting process Anna says this I used to love this season the wood stacked by the door the tang of its sap still speaking of forest the hay made all golden in the low afternoon light the rumble of the apples tumbling into the cellar bins smells and sights and sounds that said this year it would be all right there'd be food and warmth for the the babies by the time the snows came. I used to love to walk in the apple orchard this time of year to feel the soft give underfoot when I trod on a fallen fruit, thick sweet scents of rotting apple and wet wood. This year the haystocks are few and the woodpile scant and neither matters much to me. And it's, I, I wanted to read that for two reasons. Firstly, it just shows you how beautiful uh, the prose is in this book. Geraldine Brooks is a, is a stunning writer and it is almost poetic, the, the way she tells her, her stories. But I don't know, do you? I felt a real sense of um, solidarity with with the protagonist when I when I reread that in current times this sense of things that had brought me joy things that mark the passage of time the ordinariness of what I am missing in these times of being stuck inside in the middle of a pandemic it's not the extraordinary and the glorious that I'm sad to miss out on it's the really ordinary stuff of life 
Jem, I want you to read from books more. And yes, I do agree. I mean, that's one of my favorite things about fiction. It puts into words what I am feeling. And, you know, as I've now been at home for, I don't know, six weeks or whatever it is by now, I look at the world very differently and I find myself seeking out uh, pieces of prose. I find myself seeking out books that allow me to experience that in a safe space as opposed to in the space that I happen to occupy that I don't feel amazingly great about. It's true. It's a difficult moment for all of us. And there's that sense of fear being very immediate uh, for frontline workers and particularly those who are in hospitals or those who are patients right now, that real immediate sense of fear and suffering. But for the rest of us, there is that strange distance. We're sort of having this collective existential crisis without necessarily seeing in front of us what is happening. A different experience, of course, to those who were in Wuhan province in China, a different experience to those that are in Italy, a different experience to those who are in the United States, the United Kingdom and Sweden. Jem, we have different reading habits. You, if I can summarize this in a very general please do you like to read happier things than i do uh, and i like to i like the dark dystopian pandemic we're all going to die fiction so i am actually intrigued that you read this that you know this and you've come back to it to find solace or companionship or just understanding in this time of coronavirus for me this was an unusual read i read it for the first time when i was at university because it was a dear friend of mine's favorite book and I'm always interested in reading the number one favourite book of someone I care about because I think it does tell you so much about them and gives you a real insight into them that you may not otherwise have. And at the time, I, I really did enjoy the beautiful prose and I enjoyed escaping to this world that was so different from my own and I remember being particularly drawn to the exploration of faith and that these people of great faith these people who had a really strict observance of religion and belief in God having that obliterated by the reality of what was happening around them coming back to it now with a, more of a sense of currency I think what I really held on to in the book is that these people have to find a new way of living, a new reason for living, and they have to find kind of a new framework for themselves so that they can interpret life against something that isn't the Bible. They have to give themselves a new framework. They have to build it for themselves. And, you know, I don't want to overstate what we're experiencing right now, but I do think in a in a similar way, our world, our modern world is built on capitalism. It is built on globalism. It is built on the movement of people and the movement of goods without any kind of fear. It is built on a capitalism that is causing environmental conditions that mean pandemics like this are going to become more and more common, putting us at risk even before other climate disasters start to put us at risk in other ways. And so I think I found some sense of camaraderie with the characters in this book and while it is distressing and disturbing ultimately it is an optimistic narrative because they find some light in amongst horrible horrible dark and I think we all need a little bit of that right now
Well, to continue on with the theme of pandemic literature, which is very much of the moment, Astrid, I know you have got a recommendation for us and that's how you want to kick off recommendations today with some pandemic literature, of course, by a woman. I am that person who loves pandemic literature and my first recommendation is The Trespasses by Meg Mundell. Now, Meg Mundell is an Australian writer who somehow managed to publish what is a beautiful piece of literary fiction about a pandemic just before we all ended up in lockdown because of a global pandemic. Now, I'm not going to give the story away, but what is fascinating about this book is the protagonist, Billy Galloway, is coming from the United Kingdom on a ship of essentially refugees. So in this kind of alternative near future, the pandemic hits the United Kingdom much worse than Australia and those who are lucky manage to flee to Australia. And it looks at, it reverses the whole colonial um, Australian UK history. Uh, it is very much about the intimate fear of other people and, you know, bodily fluids and being stuck close to someone on a ship or on public transport. Um, it's about the inequalities in healthcare access. And ultimately, it's the story of a, the love a mother has for her son and what she will do to protect him. It is a fantastic and very contemporary piece of pandemic literature. It sounds uh, rather prescient and not dissimilar to me being at the supermarket yesterday, reaching for the final carton of eggs at the same time as another woman. And I put my hand on it, saw her and said, oh, sorry, no, please, you take them. And she just looked at me and went, not now that you've touched them. <laughs> like I was filthy. Oh my gosh. I've never been so embarrassed. Okay. That was an aside. Uh, more scary stuff. I don't think we can go past Stephen King, right? Look, we can't. Now, Stephen King has written, oh goodness knows, 50 plus books, mostly in the horror genre. But there is one, uh, one of his most famous and profound works, The Stand. Now, The Stand was originally published in 1978. So this is quite an old one. What most people don't know is The Stand is actually a piece of pandemic literature. The original edition is 1400 pages long, and that is the one I do recommend, but it does come in about an 800 page version, if that is more suitable for your uh, reading tastes. The beauty of The Stand is it is actually a critique of the AIDS virus and the fear and horror and stigma that was around this new disease uh, that was just not understood in the very, very early years. And the basic premise is, said in the United States, there is a, a flu, an influenza nicknamed Captain Trips, and it decimates the population really very quickly. And so you have the survivors who ultimately end up in, you know, it's a horror novel, ultimately end up in the, the camps of good and evil. But the social commentary never stops, even though, you know, you have kind of God and the devil representations in there as well. And, you know, you really are forced to think what life might be like if everything stopped. I mean, he has a whole chapter. It's about 50 pages looking at what happens to all of the people who die after they have survived the pandemic. So, you know, the person who slips on some wet tiles and breaks their leg and it gets infected and they die or the prisoner who survived everything that happened in the prison, but couldn't get out and starve to death. Like these kind of things uh, that are the consequence of society falling apart because of a pandemic. It is also deeply horrifying and probably Stephen King's magnum opus. Big call, big call. I might look up the sneaky, cheaty 800-page version, I think, or alternatively the Cliff Notes because I am not much one 
for horror, if I'm honest. And I know your final recommendation is a Cormac McCarthy book, which I have avoided for the longest time because it just looks so depressing. Sell it to me, Astrid Edwards. The Road by Cormac McCarthy is the most horrifying, distressing and depressing book ever published. Because <laughs> there's a good sell, isn't it? That did not work. Hold on, it didn't work? No, I mean your sell didn't work. Oh, my sell didn't work. Okay, so it was originally published in 2006. Cormac McCarthy is a, you know, a beautiful literary writer, well-known, and this is quite a short book by his standards. It is just a story of a father and son who survive an unspecified disaster. It's kind of maybe hinted that it might be a nuclear disaster, but society in North America has fallen apart and the father will do anything to protect his young son. There are very few characters in this novel. Most people are not named, but it goes to uh, violence, cannibalism, starvation, just, you know, when the lights go off, what would society do? I'm recommending this because it is beautiful, if distressing. It has repeatedly won the kind of awards that say, you know, best book published so far in the 21st century. And we are talking about fear. And if you want to escape your reality by going somewhere that feels like you're there, it feels like you are on the empty road. It feels like you are on that empty road and it is a way to safely experience fear and horror in that healthy, I love horror movies kind of way, which I think is really quite emotionally healthy in a pandemic. That sounds so ridiculously terrifying. And while you have definitely sold it to me as a brilliant piece of prose, nah, not for me. <laughs> At least not right now. Fair call. Anonymous Was a Woman is a podcast made in partnership between Future Women and Penguin Books. We're produced by Bad Producer Productions. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find Anonymous Was a Woman. And while you're there, you may as well subscribe and that way you will never miss an episode. Bye.